So good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good evening and welcome to uh, LSE for this evening's Department of Management and SEMS Global Alliance public discussion. So my name is Christine Cote. I'm a senior lecturer in practice and academic director of the um, SEMS Masters in International Management here at LSE. So I'm really delighted to be hosting uh, tonight's event, and it's my great pleasure to welcome the panel to LSE um, and this SEMS Global Alliance Anniversary Lecture. So LSE is always uh, very welcoming of uh, thought leaders to inform debate on pressing issues, um, whether they be business uh, or issues of society. And when I look at this panel um, that we have here gathered for you this evening, um, we have a journalist, two academics, um, three former LSE students. And I think this is really precisely what the um, LSE is all about. I think we all uh, look forward to what will surely be an interesting debate uh, grounded in uh, I'm, I'm sure both rigorous thought and applied insights. So I want to start by um, introducing the panel. So moderating tonight's discussion and sitting in the middle of the panelists is Jane Shaw, who is which MBA editor at The Economist. Jane is joined by a distinguished panel. So starting on the left, we have LSE and SEMS alumna Lorraine Ansel. Lorraine is a business owner, a voiceover artist, and a studio engineer, and has worked in global communication roles for Amnesty International and for L'Oreal. Next is LSE alumnus Saj Jetha. Saj is founder of the multi-award winning talent consultancy, The Smarty Train. Um, and Saj is also the author of a forthcoming book uh, pertinent to tonight's discussion, aimed at millennials on how to succeed at work, published by Penguin, um, coming out in January 2019. Sitting on the right-hand side of our moderator is Sunita Melhorta, professor at the Université Catholique de Louvain, a lecturer on the SEMS Masters in International Management, and managing uh, director of executive coaching firm People Insights. Next, we have Nina Mahanti, a recent LSE and SEMS alumna, who has worked for MasterCard and Starling Bank. Um, and Nina was granted, very impressively, um, a Tier 1 Exceptional Talent in Digital Technology visa, um, and now works as Business Development Manager at a firm called Bud. A Bud is a London, London startup and financial network um, organization seeking to facilitate great experiences for banking customers. And finally, um, we have our own, our very own Dr. Sandy uh, Pepper, Professor of Management Practice at the London School of Economics and a member of the faculty on the SEMS Masters in International Management. So our panelists tonight have uh, one thing in common. Many of them either teach or have graduated from uh, the SEMS MIM. Uh, as you know, this is a, a global degree delivered by 31 academic institutions, 73 multinational companies, uh, and seven NGOs. Uh, tonight, at this special anniversary lecture, we're commemorating 30 years of SEMS Global Alliance. So for the past 30 years, uh, SEMS has promoted global citizenship, ethical conduct, um, cultural diversity, and professional accountability through global management education. And now, uh, today, SEMS remains dedicated to educating and preparing future generations of international business leaders. Um, and furthermore, SEMS remains dedicated, um, uh, as I say, to um, preparing future generations of business leaders. So mastering the multinational 
or the multi-generational workplace, which is the topic of tonight's discussion, is very much at the core of the SIMS ethos. And I'm sure our panel will have a lot to say on this topic, as, as I'm sure will the audience. <clears throat> So before I invite Jane uh, to open the discussion, I just want to say a few words about the format of tonight's event. Um, so this evening is a discussion, um, and the idea is that the discussion will start very much with the panel on stage, um, but then it will be uh, very much a discussion with you. And so you'll have an opportunity, as, uh, as usual, to pose questions to the panel uh, near the latter part um, of the evening. Um, for those of you who wish... Uh, to take your discussion online. Uh, we have a Twitter hashtag for this evening's event, uh, and it is hashtag LSEGEN. So I ask you to take note of that. And I also ask um, all of you to please uh, put your phones on silent just so that we have no disruptions to our discussions this evening. Um, and finally, uh, this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, obviously subject to no technical difficulties. Um, but now, will you please join me in welcoming our panel to discuss uh, mastering the multi-generational workforce. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Can you hear me? Um, thank you very much, everybody, for um, coming out um, in this beautiful, sunny evening to join us here. I'm very pleased to be here at the LSAE to moderate this panel. Um, I, firstly, I wanted to ask, I wanted to do a sort of straw poll. So we're talking about multi, the multi-generational workplace. There are three to five definitions of cohorts in this, depending on how you, how you look at it. But which of you would consider yourselves to be millennials? How many of you? And how many Generation X? Ooh, ooh. And how many baby boomers? Well, that's actually a surprising sort of split there. So I just wondered, because, you know, the, um, the, the, I wanted to get a sense of um, how, how we're all split here in terms of uh, our questions. So um, firstly, so we want to talk about exactly that. Um, when we're talking about all these cohorts of individuals, there's an awful lot of information um, available to us about, about who they are and how they behave. So I'd, I'd like to start by asking um, Sandy, Professor Sandy Pepper, if he could define these generational cycles. Okay, thank you very much. Well, this is the LSE, and um, everyone who is either a student here or who has studied here knows that we like to start with a bit of theory. Um, and uh, so um, I'm going to talk just for a few moments about generational theory. Um, sociologists need to find ways of stratifying society. And, of course, people will normally talk about things like class or ethnicity. Um, but early in the, the 20th century, um, a, a sociologist called... Karl Mannheim, who uh, was uh, coincidentally for a period a lecturer here at the LSE, um, he wrote a paper called The Problem of Generations and put, put out the idea actually that we might uh, stratify society in terms of different generational cohorts. Um, and another group of uh, sociologists, sociologists historians, two Americans, William Strauss and Neil Howe, subsequently wrote a book called Generations, where they suggested, interestingly, that 
um, there's a kind of generational cycle that generations go round, that they repeat themselves, mm-hmm. and that almost scarily you could start to predict what society is going to be like depending on where in the, in the cycle you are. Now, not everybody buys that, but that's uh, you know, another uh, aspect of this way of thinking. So then, you know, what are the cohorts? And at this point, as an ageing baby boomer, I have to put on my reading glasses. <laughs> so um, we typically talk about um, five current cohorts. Um, uh, well, I say five current cohorts in the, in the workplace. The silent generation who were born between 1920 and 1940. There aren't too many of them, I think, still left in the workplace. Maybe one or two. Um, uh, and... Things that we associate with them are things like hierarchy, authority, structure. This is the generation that came through uh, the war, um, and they like stability and security. Um, And just to kind of illustrate this, musical tastes uh, examples are Frank Sinatra and Glenn Miller. And there's the baby boomers, my generation. I creep into this, uh, 1940 to 1960. Um, characteristics are work hard, excellence, meritocracy. I like this. Work hard, play hard. Um, uh, um, and music tastes, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Uh, Generation X, 1960 to 1980. Uh, the characteristics here are individualistic, family focused, work as much as you need to work, but no more. Um, musical tastes, Kurt Cobain and Michael Jackson. Uh, Generation Y, the millennials, 1980 to 2000. Characteristics, entrepreneurial, ethical, tolerant, let's make the world a better place. Uh, musical tastes, Black Eyed Peas and Justin Bieber. <laughs> Generation Z, um, the connected generation, 1980, sorry, um, 2000 onwards. I put 1920 onwards here, but I'm in 2000 onwards. Um, Characteristics still being worked out, but this is the Facebook generation. uh, So the characteristics uh, I have listed are Facebook, Google, Twitter, YouTube, etc. And in quotes, where's my mobile? Um, And and the only piece of music that uh, I I couldn't associate with, somebody suggested Lady Gaga was associated with this, but... um, um, Nina's laughing at that. <laughs> now, not everybody agrees with this way of analysing society. Um, so, uh, you know, whilst it has its proponents, uh, people who, who argue that you can identify very definite characteristics in different generations, there are others who say, uh, you know, that a 35-year-old manager today is no different from a 35-year-old manager uh, 50 years ago um, that today's millennials will start to behave like um, uh, uh, t- today's baby boomers um, in a few years' time when they've uh, progressed. So it's, uh, I, I, would, I think it's important just to understand it's a, it's, a, it's a theory, it's a set of ideas, it's not necessarily uh, beyond doubt, but it's certainly a very interesting discussion point. Mm. And, and what do you think, um, Sunita Mahotra, Professor Mahotra? Do you think that people born within these cohorts have any have a strong identity, particularly in the workplace, mm. though, rather than sort of you know defined by Michael Jackson or yeah. 
Actually, I, I want to talk about Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. No, yeah. As, as Sandy was speaking, I'll answer the question in just a sec, but yeah. as, as Sandy was speaking, I was just thinking, you know what? I'm Generation X, but I feel like Generation Z. I feel like Baby Boomer. I feel like a millennial. Sorry, Nina. So, um, but on that note, I, I think before I even jump into that, I think we are looking at generation today, obviously, but it's a bigger diversity issue. And sometimes I feel we also forget the national cultures. That's another thing that plays into it, style of individuals. They're introverts, they're extroverts, regardless of whether they're baby boomers. Can you hear me back there? Okay. Whether they're baby boomers or, or Gen Z. So I think that's, of course, the bigger um, issue. But we are talking about generation today. So. I think there's a lot of stereotyping, uh, unfortunately. I see that in the workplace as I work with my clients. I see it with my students as I teach in the beautiful SEMS. This is not an advertisement uh, for Roland or anyone. It's just because I fundamentally love the SEMS students, um, interacting with them. But I find that there is research, and, and you know, PwC does great research. I've read this report. CIPD has done something tapping into talent. They do say that you know, millennials, and you'll correct me, right, Nina, and a lot of you in the audience, <clears throat> subsequently, uh, is looking uh, are looking for work-life balance, are looking for flexibility in the workplace. They're looking for making an impact um, in the environment, uh, as opposed to maybe my generation where we were not very considerate about the environment. So I think some of those things, as I read the reports, but also as I interact with the same students, my own kids, who are also millennials, I do see that that is true. I see that the generation is very curious, very engaged, lots of questions, you know, wanting to learn about the world, wanting to make an impact. Please correct me. Uh, I'm sure you will, Nina. Um, but a lot of curiosity, a lot of uh, connection because, you know, there's Twitter, there's social media. You all are always connected to the Internet. So I find that, that there is a certain... Um, there is a certain part of that cohort, at mm. least in the generation. In our generation, which is X, it was about working hard. It was about, you know, we had loyalty to one organization because that's kind of the options we had. You know, you would go in, do an MBA, you would study, and, and that, that would be it. But um, what I also hear a lot from the SEM students, from the flip side, is they're confused sometimes. They say, you know, we have so many options that sometimes we actually don't know what is it that we want to focus on? So you, you find a balance, I, I think, of all. But again, and this is maybe just my very simple uh, human common sense brain, if you will, I find as I again interact with the different generations and myself uh, and living my life, I find that we're all human. And at the end, the bottom line, I find that a lot of people just want to be engaged at work. They just want to be happy and have a great boss or a great coach um, and use the skills that we all have. And that's maybe just a very simplistic view of the world, but my my perspective. Okay, so, so in your sort of opinion, then, it's not useful to think about cohorts and, you know, or in the workplace particularly? That I, I think it is useful if it yeah. is used for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, I think okay. stereotyping is dangerous, yeah. um, and we'll talk about it later, I know, in the panel, but when you have project teams where you mix generations, mm -hmm. where you mix cultures, where you mix all aspects of diversity, introverts, extroverts, I think it's tremendous because you can get a lot from it. But I think if you stereotype and you say, I'm this generation and I like this music, mm -hmm then you might lose out on some of the broader diversity issues. Yes, yeah, sure. I, these, are, these are useful yeah. for, 
um, uh, for, for, for trying to you know, define what you know what um, what the challenges are in the workplace, though particularly for managers. And I'm wondering, Sarge, that you you're actually, and I'm very intrigued by this by this book that you're writing. You're, you're writing a book aimed at millennials yes. in 200 word chapters. Yes, that's right. Um, on how to succeed at work. Um, uh, so we can we're going to come back to that. Um, but having done all this research, do you, do you think there's 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 bias? Is there is there is there generational um, bias? So I would say in the world that we work in, and we're really privileged to work with a number of huge organisations in the world, and we get to see the insides of these yeah. great organisations. I think that there is an appreciation for the possibility of bias mm. as opposed to bias itself. Okay. And I think um, the more and more we see our clients, um, you know, in the city or, or, or multinationally. What we're noticing is that the best organisations are doing well because of this appreciation rather than in spite of it. Mm. Um, and there are just three examples that come to mind as I think about this. Um, so you know, brilliant organisations are recognising that there could be a bias in the line management relationship um, if it's a generational difference. And brilliant organisations are actually celebrating it and are actually, I mean, we ourselves train line managers on um, how to manage different generations to mm-hmm. themselves. So, so that's brilliant. But I'm quite humbled by the other two examples. Um, the second one being that brilliant organisations now, um, they're starting to celebrate uh, entrepreneurship more. They're noticing mm. that millennials are, as you said, they're quite entrepreneurial. Um, they've got a bigger cause that they're looking to fight. Um, and again, not stereotyping too much, but their brilliant organisations are now celebrating this. And this is where you go to brilliant organisations and they've got small incubator units mm. or their... Um, They've got initiatives to ideate better, um, which is really fantastic. Um, But the third, um, also quite inspiring, is as the consumer market's changing demographically. So if you think of, you know, who you're selling your washing powder to currently versus who you might have been selling it to 10 years ago, um, organisations at the top level are now starting to want to understand different generations and therefore why not do it by starting within the organisations and this is where we're starting to see reverse mentoring, for instance, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, mm-hmm. where we've got senior leadership teams saying, hold on a moment, um, I'd really learn from you, um, someone in a different generation, so perhaps you could teach me something and I could teach you something back. Um, and that's really brilliant for starting to get to know your product market um, mm-hmm. through your, um, your employees, which is fantastic. Mm. But, I mean, do you think there's any sort of bias at all in terms of the way that people are sort of influenced, you know, how, how people are managed, how they behave at work? Is there any kind of generational is that, you're, threat? You're, you're pushing me to say yes or no. Well, um, I'm a journalist, that's my <laughs> I <love> job. <laughs> I would say that I think brilliant organisations have recognised the possibility of bias early mm. and therefore they've upskilled and train themselves on how to overcome it. So I would say we're not mm. seeing it. Um, mm. We're okay. seeing actions to overcome it before right. it happens. Yeah. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I think we've we've sort of we've sort of punctured our generational stereotypes already <laughs> within within this. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But um, Sandy, I just wanted to come back to you for for a bit. So given that that our panelists seem to 
seem to say that it's not entirely useful to think about generations in this way. I mean, I, 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 so I should defend of, generational theory. Yeah. I, at this point? Well, so, I mean, is there are there I mean, different ways yeah, of thinking? No, so, could I just be clear, just really quickly, yeah. that I, I do think that there are patterns and trends yes, there. But what I'm saying is, organisations are seeing them and they're actually turning them around and celebrating them. Sure. But they had to be there to celebrate. So, so I do mm-hmm. think generational mm-hmm. theory does exist, mm. but I don't think it's as clearly delineated. Yeah, sure. It was more just, just to clarify. Bias. Okay. Thank you. So, so, um, so this is sociological theory, not psychological theory, and the difference is quite important. And I'm sorry, I'm, Nina's laughing at me because I'm being an LSE no, academic. No, I love it. I love it, Sandy. Um, um, <laughs> so, so you know, this, this is all, this is all about averages. It's not about. You can't analyse individual people's behaviour with these big categories. We're Mm. talking about what happens in organisations when you're thinking about people collectively. Um, It's not the only way to look at people. You know, um, I mean, ethnicity, uh, cultural differences, these are all incredibly important too. We live in a very diverse society, thankfully, and we should celebrate that fact. Um, do I think there are differences between generations that form part of that diversity? Yes, I do. Um, do, do I think we should dwell on them uh, more than other things? No, not necessarily. Uh, but I think wise managers recognise that diversity is a strength, but diversity has to be managed. You have to treat people differently. Um, and um, if you assume um, that everyone is going to behave the way that you do, um, then probably you're in for a nasty shock. Mm. Okay. Um, so, Nita, just very briefly, I think, um, do you, I mean, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, are there any particular organisations that are thinking about this sort of in a relatively innovative, innovative fashion? Mm. I, you know, Sasha's already talked about reverse mentoring, you know, but are there other organisations, yeah. other innovations that that, that we should particularly point out or be aware of? Actually, I, I think organizations, some of them, Saj, mm. uh, in your experience and also mine, are really good at it, mm. and some don't yet know how to do it. So I think they're struggling a little bit because there are line managers from Generation X, Baby Boomers, mm-hmm. and uh, just very concrete examples of you know some of my clients, and they say, you know, they, they don't work beyond five o'clock. Yeah. And then I'm challenging them and I'm like, so what? You know, are the results there? And they look at me, no, 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 but they need to work from nine <laughs> to seven because otherwise they're working half day. And, and you know, and so, so there is some of that. Mm-hmm. But there are innovative organizations that are doing very simple things. I think one is just putting generations together in projects mm-hmm. and using the millennials for creating an innovation culture and using the I should say older, but between inverted commas, older generations for ensuring risk management, you know, a sharing experience. And I think that's where they really leverage diversity very well. Mm-hmm. Simple project and based on skills. Mm-hmm. So regardless of the generation, it balances it. Mm-hmm. Reverse mentoring is fantastic. I mean, I've had experiences with clients where we actually built reverse mentoring programs and you have CEOs working with, you know, the younger generation, yeah. sales people saying, this is social media. This is what it's all about. And then you have, you know, the CEOs that I'm, I'm some of them coaching, and their their eyes are lighting up. Wow, this is great. 
and at the same time you know the other the other generation learns so that's extremely mm-hmm. useful um collaborative workspaces i mean i'm just thinking of offices that i visit now which are so different than offices earlier you know mm-hmm. we have the ice cream can you know uh, trains going around you have people sitting in lounges and actually they're doing fantastic work mm-hmm. but sometimes i see some of the older leaders their eyes are popping out they're going oh my god they're not working and i'm like they're actually working much more than you can you know imagine so collaborative workspaces um cultural hackathons um you know idea generations hackathons where people are getting together overnight coming up with brilliant ideas and companies are really experimenting so there's a lot of that i think that's um i think that's really interesting and if you don't mind i'd like to cuz this i think segues nicely segues no segues <laughs> nicely into our next topic which is kind of which is about communication yes. right and the and and the use of digital particularly within organizations and how different generations or not um may use communications differently so somebody coming into you know coming into the workplace now is going to be a digital native obviously and they might want to communicate uh, solely um by online messaging you know, a bit of gchat a bit of slack or whatever um I, and so just when you were talking about these collaborative workspaces it's kind of interesting right because in bigger organizations there seems to be slightly more perhaps a slightly more siloed effect i'm i'm not entirely sure whether that's right but i wanted to bring in lorraine who's our who's our communications expert here and to sort of ask you know what you know how how is communication changing at work what 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 we're saying what we what don't we say and more importantly is the art of phone conversation dying thank you this is a topic that i've been thinking about quite a lot lately and over the past 15 years i've worked with many advertising agencies mm. I've worked with production agencies, print agencies, press, journalists, magazine, TV, radio. And in the world that I've worked in, it's all about talking, talking to other people to get information across and get information from them. <clears throat> and over the past years, and I I still call a lot of people today and I and I find myself thinking what's happened? What's happened to the art of conversation? a lot of people are, are we all too busy or is there something more is everyone using their mobiles to whatsapp facebook messenger <laughs> slack uh, gchat uh, instagram chat you know which which pick a social media one and somebody will send you a message on it so what i find these days is when i'm calling people up i'm having to say well who is this who is on the end of this phone um where is this telephone etiquette that once was and and i find that because i'm from sems and part of the ethos of sems is connecting with people and going out and meeting people that's the great value and chatting to people talking to people trying to reach out to them in a much more physical dynamic real way i feel brings a lot more to the table so these messages they're great to start off with but i feel there is a lack i feel there's a lack of connection we're all connected to each other and we're all tweeting or all facebooking away but actually are we really reaching out to people are we saying to people well how are you what are you doing how are you really mm. and so <clears throat> what i find is that there is there is more and more people want to stick with the written word want to not engage verbally mm. 
Is, is that a danger? Are we missing out on something? Well, I, I sort of, um, I, 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 I did a very quick sort of cast around, found a corn ferry survey which said that um, more than half of millennials prefer, you know, they communicate solely by online messaging. These are managers. Now, this is a small survey, I have to say this with my <laughs> journalistic hat on, and only about 8% uh, by 14% or something, uh, 3% by phone. And I don't know about you. I mean, I'm a journalist, and I know a lot of you people here are, are you know, some of you are sort of... Uh, students and some of you are sort of PR people, and I do have a sort of personal preference for, for phones, so just if you want to, want to do that, just telling you right now. Um, but to go, kind of go back to that, because I, mean, I do find that very interesting, so you have to find these different ways of communicating in order to manage effectively, right? Um, and so digital is obviously completely embedded, I would say, in the, in the modern workplace, um, but I mean, how, how well are organisations really sort of coping with this, dealing with this are they, are they affecting this infrastructure properly I feel it's an opportunity for them to grow yeah. and to experiment with um, I know many companies, especially video games companies, use Slack a lot mm. and yes. perhaps the, the communication etiquette isn't perhaps what it was once for emails but you know, with lots of emojis and lots of hashtags and lots of um, GIFs yeah, gifts and banter and cat gifts. Cat gifts are very popular. Um, but I, I feel that's an opportunity because you're plugging into what people are talking about and how they're communicating. Mm. <clears throat> so it, it is important for organisations to accept that and to leverage upon that. Mm. Um, and, and why fear that? It is an opportunity, um, despite us all wanting to talk. And um, that's my personal preference as well. But... We have to move with the times. We have to see what's, what's up and coming. But we can also help them to say, well, that's great, we've got a Slack, but let's have a real meeting, if we can, and talk through these projects, work on them, see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, Nina, I wanted to bring you, bring you in here. As a, as in. Yay. Yes. Um, Nina, you, you work for a startup here, here in London. And um, and you sort of, but you come from California, right? So you were there throughout the whole thing in Silicon Valley and all the rest of it. And I, I, I mean, do you find that workplaces are, are? Do you think they're more informal? Do you think that you know that this has opportunities as well as as well as these sort of challenges that we're talking about, which is that people have lost the art of phone conversation. <laughs> Well, now I feel pressured to, like, raise up our entire generation. No, I don't think you you, you don't need to speak for an entire generation, but you obviously come from a... Yes, of course. You have a different experience. I mean, besides the fact that I've got trainers on, um, (laughs) up on this panel. So, yeah, I I work at a startup in Hackney. We're very hipster, craft coffee, (laughs) very good, lots of beards. Um, <laughs> not me, obviously, but on the men at, at the company where I work. Um, and I'm from the Silicon Valley originally, so my parents, I refer to them as OG developers from the first dot-com boom. My mother was a QA engineer for 24 years. Um, my father's been in network security forever. Um, and I definitely do see a difference in the way that we communicate. Um, where we communicate as well. Mm. So to our point earlier about Slack, mm. um, for those that don't know what Slack is, I imagine most people do, it's um, 
a messaging service. It's just a quick straw poll. Anybody Everyone, here? Do people know what Slack is for the most people, part? Yeah. Well, no, no. Tell I'll show you. It's <laughs> great. You can send photos. You can send audience. cat videos. It's great. Um, and I was actually just I was brushing up on the questions, and I was thinking last night. Um, so it's Sunday morning, and my colleague decided to reach out to me and ask me about something that was work-related. And it's Sunday, um, which, you know, entitled millennial that I am, was thinking I should be sleeping in. But um, it made me hyper-aware of the fact that today we carry our colleagues around in our pockets, right? So most of us have a work phone, or if we don't have a work phone, we have our work emails or our Slack on our phone. Maybe we're checking them right now. I wouldn't blame you. You've got a lot on. You're very busy people. Um, but they're constantly there um, everywhere you go, which is great because we can communicate on the go. But at the same time, where are the borders? At what point do I actually push back to our COO, who's only three years older than me, and say, actually, no, um, it's my weekend, and I'm going to enjoy my weekend right now. Um, on top of that, I think... To your point earlier, Lorraine, you're right. We've, we have lost a bit of the phone etiquette. You know, people pick up the phone, yes, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> hey. Um, and that actually grinds my gears because I went to Miss Manners class when I was young. My mother sent me to Miss Manners class. Um, however, in defense... Oh, what? So what's Miss Manners? Oh, what? Oh, Miss Manners class. <laughs> what? What's that? We're not, we're not from California. Um, I think my mom wanted me to be very posh. Um, okay. So obviously I came to LSE. I fit in right perfectly well. I say, yeah, no, instead of year. Um, but it, it was, you know, table settings. You work in with your cutlery. Yes. We, yeah. um, I write handwritten thank you notes mm -hmm. for everything. Um, but to Lorraine's point earlier, where maybe we've lost a bit of that magic where it was sending a note um, or something like that, we're actually in a very interesting place where now we're hyper-connected. So I go on LinkedIn, and I know about a tiny deal someone has won. Mm -hmm. or Well, not tiny. It's very great, I'm sure. Um, but then I actually said to Lorraine when I walked in today, I said, what a lovely green dress you had on earlier today with your dog. Uh, because I follow Lorraine on Instagram. Uh, and, <laughs> to each other. <laughs> right. And, and I thought, what, she looks lovely. And I wanted to let her know that. But it's because we know so much, it can be overwhelming. But I think it's navigating it that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I'm quite, I'm quite proud of myself for this. Um, there is a partner that we've been trying to land as a company for quite a while. And the man who is um, managing on the other end recently had a baby. And I actually would not have known this if I didn't follow him on Twitter. So he was posting photos of his newborn son. Um, and I said, actually, we should do something as a company and send along some flowers or a basket or um, something to him. And he was actually very touched by it. And it was kind of balancing this digitized, I've seen it online, and then bringing it into the real world and using it to leverage um, in our personal relationship. My role is business development, and for all we talk about AI and robots taking our jobs, I really think that the human aspect will just never be replaced. Because is a robot really going, is Sophia, the robot, going to send this man a basket 
uh, a baby basket or something like that, or write a handwritten note after a really lovely meeting, I really highly doubt it. So really it's navigating it and using it properly. We get um, a lot of flack sometimes, I think, millennials, for being on our phones um, a lot, but I swear we're doing good with it. Sometimes, and then other times we're watching cat videos. <laughs> Actually, to come back on your point, you know, it's something that I've seen because I, I speak to a lot of LSE students and I talk to them about leveraging their social media accounts for potential jobs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them do look at me very strangely and say, but isn't it just for cat photos? Um, we also like dogs here. And dogs. Just so everyone knows. Um, <laughs> And I point out to them, well, if you're really passionate about working for X company, and I'll use L'Oreal for example, because that's, that's where I started and I, I loved my time there, um, then why aren't you saying, so I, I still tweet the L'Oreal account and say, oh my goodness, that's shade number 37, isn't it, from Yves Saint Laurent, when they're showing a video of their factory. Whether or not it is, they reply sometimes and they say, yes, you're absolutely correct. They want that interaction. That's the whole point of social media. So I always encourage students to, to say if you do have a passion, show it. Show a portfolio of your work. If you're fascinated by, I don't know, um, strategy consulting, show that, you know, McKinsey's um, report that they put on social media on Twitter, because I follow them as well, say that you liked it. What difference would you have made? What was wrong with it? What was right with it? What would you have added to it? So mm-hmm. leverage my, upon it. My past two jobs I found through Twitter. So mm-hmm. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> Yeah, that that that, that, that is How's very that interesting. For yeah, 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 exactly. I just, just just briefly to say, so Slack is a is a is a communication method. We use it at the Economist actually. Um, it's a bit like GChat or something, but you can send files, you can have group chats, you can do this. And in fact, I sent my colleague. Uh, uh, a news article about uh, the, the earthquake in Lincolnshire on Sunday morning because we've been talking about it, which is terrible. So again, there's that generational. Well, there's, there's just a blur between the personal and, and then the private, which I think can be, which I think can be a, a bit of a challenge and is quite difficult to navigate. I think at times, you know, personally for your own space, but um, obviously within within um, uh, a sort of the, the, the generational divide, because I'm sure that my senior editors will be using Slack. You know, um, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning, I just, I very much, I very much doubt it. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Saj, a bit, because your company deals obviously with sort of millennials. You started off doing millennials, yeah. but you advise across, you know, the yeah. entire kind of managerial chain, right? Yes. So, I mean, do you think that uh, that those preferences that we're talking about and the ways in which you can Leverage them. Um, do, you, do you think there's there's a difficulty in trust? Do you think it, that there's the older generation find it more difficult? Just you know, we have to sort of stick to the multi-generational yeah. aspect of this. Yeah. I mean, there are better ways of, of having a conversation when people don't use Slack. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let me answer this question with: we're, I'm an economist, an LSE economist, yeah. with a two by two here. Sure. So, I want you to imagine on on this axis here, we've got the various generations and their communication preferences. <coughs> so, we've got you know memo in organisation. We've got we want to meet face to face. We've got phone calls. <laughs> um, we're now moving into kind of millennial territory where we've got emails. Um, and then we're starting to move into the, the world of the Zs, where you know we've got social media, and we've got even, as in my office now, a WhatsApp group uh, as well. Yeah. So we've got all of these communication um, uh, methods going across this axis. And then I want to just um, think about the word trust. Mm. And there's a great book called The Trusted Advisor, 
Um, and they break, um, the, the trust is a function of three characteristics, essentially. So the first is credibility. Um, so I trust you if you're credible. I trust you if you're reliable. And I trust you if I could have some level of intimacy with you. Okay? And this book talks about, um, on the credibility front, credibility is all about words. Reliability is all about actions. And um, intimacy is all about emotions. Mm-hmm. So I want you to imagine those going down this axis. Um, yeah, so is everyone following me so far in my virtual axis? Right? So we've got communication preferences <laughs> going across here. Up here before, right? <laughs> <laughs> communication preferences going across here, and then we've got the components of trust going down here. So actions, um, intimacy, mm. uh, and emotions, and words. And now I want you to see that's the complexity of an organisation. The matrix in the middle is what we're dealing with every day. So you've got different generations that you know, might be using the right words but being intimate and talking about feelings. You might have some generations that are using different methods um, and talking about um, you know, uh, something completely different, using a completely different medium. The short answer is I think it's work in progress. Mm. Um, but trust, I don't think it's broken down. I mm. think organisations, once again, they're starting to recognise generational difference mm. and they're starting to put um, mechanisms in place to help build trust rather than break it. And I think the biggest one is just appreciating the exact moment when you need to change your communication channel. Mm. So in our office, for instance, you know, on our, if I go right to the opposite end of the spectrum of our WhatsApp group in the office, mm. you know, it's a great communication tool for one-way messaging, for quick facts, um, for limited debate. But the minute we start to get into a debate where something could be misconstrued, whether it's an emoticon um, that you know, Emily might have used, that John might have misinterpreted... That's when we know that we need to change the communication method and move to something else. Mm. So I would say brilliant organisations now are starting to um, over-invest in the method rather than the message, if that makes sense, an appreciation of when to change the method. To change it from, I don't know, email to Slack or... or Correct, or, or, or when to pick up the phone. This, or when, yeah, to, pick when to pick up the phone, sort of, sort of, you know, doing some kind of... Uh, structured approach yeah. to communication and the appropriate time to do yeah okay. exactly and across all correct in yeah. that two by two yeah. um, absolutely and I think to be honest I think there's a real link I would probably say between um, different communication channels yeah. and what I'm starting to see or what we're starting to see in organisations around anxiety um, and, and almost kind of sort of starting to venture into mm-hmm. the mental health territory where you know an, uh, an email doesn't con- construe emotion very well it doesn't convey it particularly brilliantly mm. and that's when you might have a certain subsection of your workforce potentially a generation mm. going home worrying about something because they're unable to detect tone in an email which they might worry about overnight i can see lots of worried faces here so you'll you can, i guess everyone can emphasize with this um, but actually organizations are now starting to go well, hold on a when you come mm. back to work the next morning or before you leave work rather than worry about it just pick up the phone and double check that's okay um and that's yeah, a really I mean, good example I, of a, I, I would sort of yeah i mean i the, the, I, I think that's a really fascinating topic, mm. actually, but probably one we're going to have to come back to. Perhaps the audience will have sort of questions about that, because I want to go on to our last topic, um, which is the ability to attract talent across generations, because this is one of the main 
um, challenges that, that we read about constantly, right? How do you keep? How do you attract the millennials? How do you keep the millennials? They're going to leave you after three or four years. Um, so, and and also, you know, we hear about different generations and that they maybe want slightly different work-life balance. They want flexibility and all the rest of it. So this is all changing. So I'm just wondering if um, if you can tell us briefly, because I think we're running out of time a little bit, um, can you tell us how that's changing and what we can kind of expect in, in the future? How, you know, how's that going to work in the future? Yeah. How, are you gonna, how are we going to do this across the... Yeah. In, you know, three sentences. God, I've no. got three sentences. Wow. <laughs> no question. Um, so I think, I think in three sentences, the changes are that I think people's relationship with work is changing. So, um, so that's the first one. And that's all to do, for me, with a lot of the emotional and the sociological okay. relationships you have with your work. Mm-hmm. So that's what does working from home mean? That's collaboration. Mm. Um, that's you know, gig economy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I would say the second big change is work's relationship with technology. Mm. So this is, uh, you know, VR, AR, um, how is you know, the cloud and various technological bits changing my relationship with work and the changes that are going to come. Mm. Um, and I think the third really big one is um, the impact of, of skills versus technical skills. So soft skills, if you follow all the research at the moment, that's where you should be over-investing in mm. um, for a changing workplace of the future because computers can't do soft skills. But what computers will be brilliant at doing is your technical skills. So that's you know, not to say you should be underinvesting in them, but in the future, the predictions are that organisations are actually going to be, start to become smaller because a lot of the technical capability of organisations is going to be undertaken by computers. Mm. Um, so that, that yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah, three no, sentences, but I tried my absolute, best. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, I think that, that, absolutely. I mean, I think that's... that's um, yeah. I should have wrapped up on that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, thank you for that. Um, Nina, I mean, without, again, being the voice of a generation, because <laughs> was the only person on the panel, um, I mean, you went from a big multinational organisation and moved from there to a start-up. So... I mean, do you think multi? I mean, what, what can multinational organisations kind of do? I mean, we talked about entrepreneurship, a little bit entrepreneurship, um, but I mean, is there? Can you see a sort of yeah way of? So I I actually don't see it as a competition between startups and incumbents, um, really, because I was working at Mastercard and I had the time of my life there, and I've mm. got um a colleague here who works at Salesforce. I know she loves it there, and it's a massive, massive company. I think, and Sandy will love this, um, it all comes down to culture. So um, to quote Peter Drucker, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. My father would be so proud. He loves Peter Drucker. Um, And what we're looking for, as we mentioned before, when we were defining the generations, I think to speak on behalf of millennials, we are um, very interested in the ethical side of things. What is our uh, CSR at the company for which we work? Um, Is our work meaningful and purposeful? We all think deep down inside we have the capacity to change the world, and maybe that's naive, but I think that's a very defining aspect of our generation. Um, But we also have other struggles where we know that many of us expect to never 
retire, which is a bit depressing for me. Um, so, you know, Richard Thaler, for all the work he's done on Nudge and, um, you know, investing in our pensions, we just don't see that we're ever going to be able to do that. While we are also, about 50% of us have some sort of side hustle or side gig, so whether that's babysitting or bartending or actually running a small business on the side, about 50% of us have got that going on as well. So what we're looking for is... I think, a workplace that is going to respect us and want to hear our voice, um, give us meaningful work, but also give us a culture that allows us to be creative, to push ourselves, to challenge us, and actually say, you look bored, and the light in your eyes has gone out, and I don't like that. <laughs> right? And um, <laughs> I want you to, to challenge yourself. And I'm very fortunate that I have that with the startup where I work at Buds, um, where actually our CEO did pull me aside and say, you look bored. We need to change that. What can we do to change that? Granted, there's 35 of us. But how do you then um, translate that to a Google, an Apple, Facebook, where they're huge, huge businesses? And how do you make, or at least give the illusion, um, to each employee that they are very valued, that their voice matters, and that what they're doing does have impact? I think if, if a large organization is able to do that, then really they've got it made. Mm-hmm. And I think they're making really great steps. It's just a coincidence that Google, Salesforce, and MasterCard happen to be SEMS corporate partners. <laughs> but they're doing an excellent job. Um, culture, though, at the end of the day, culture. And it comes from the head. Yeah. Fish rots from the head. So I just want to ask you a very, very quick question. What's the, um, uh, the age of the oldest employee at all? Um, at What's your kind of age range? Currently, we have... Oh, I used to be the youngest. Oh, you're the youngest. So right. I just turned 25, so I'm no longer the youngest. Right. Um, so we range from 24... Or 25 to 47. Right, so there's a fairly kind of... Yeah. yeah. So I was just kind of... You know, I was thinking about that, because, you know, I mean, if, we, if we're thinking about the older workers and we talk about reverse mentoring, you know... Um, that's that's a real challenge, particularly in bigger organisations, how you share that kind of knowledge, right? And I wanted to ask Sandy a little bit about this. As, As a representative somebody who's of a the career older changer. <laughs> <laughs> career changer, who's, who's a late career changer, but spent a long time in one organisation, you know. Um, how, I mean, there, is, there, there have been a couple of sort of court cases in, in, in the United States recently about sort of, I think, possibly unintended um, ageism um, across, uh, across a sort of couple of companies. Um, and I just wondered if, if we think we're actually equipped for this. You know, are companies kind of equipped for... For, the, for this type of thing, for, for an ageing an aging workforce? I mean, you guys are not representative of the um, workforce I, at large. I, I, you know, my personal experience is in a maybe slightly unusual one. I, I, I was laughing earlier. Um, here's an example of the difference between a baby boomer and a millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, I said to Nina when I saw her, I said, I just changed jobs. And she looked at me as if I was mad. And she said, um, no, I've been there for nine months. I said to Nina, I was in my first job for 27 years. <laughs> I could have had a baby in nine months, though, to be fair. To well, be fair. I could have had quite a lot of babies. <laughs> Um, so, um, uh, so uh, 
I got to the point where I was coming up to my 49th birthday. I was kind of looking around at, in my firm, PwC, where I worked at the time, and actually um, we were encouraged from 55 years on to leave. You know, that was old, regarded as... Right. There were all sorts of incentives to leave. Um, and I kind of looked at this and thought, actually, I don't... I'm not quite... I'm not ready for carpet slippers and walking the dog and playing golf. Um, I don't have a dog and I don't play golf. And, um, and, and um, a, an opportunity, a fantastic opportunity, came uh, to come here to the LSE. Um, my research is on executive pay um, and uh, I took a very substantial pay cut to come to the LSE Um, you know this is not an example of rational choice theory at work Um, but it is something about um, meaning rather than money and uh, actually so I made a choice for meaning rather than money and actually I think that's probably um, I don't think that's unusual to me. I think that's characteristic of many people. You know, Lucy Kellaway, the uh, FT journalist who I'm a big fan of, um, uh, as, you, as you know, uh, left the FT, uh, uh, took a reduction in salary to go and be a teacher at a secondary school in East London. I think that's brilliant um, and uh, probably a lot more difficult than teaching MSc students at LSE. Um, so um, I suspect... Um, I think there are lots of these opportunities around. I think it requires a flexibility of mind that maybe not everybody has. Um, uh, uh, And I hope um, uh, employers will embrace the idea of actually creating kind of different kinds of work opportunities for um, ageing baby boomers who might have something still to add um, in, you know, particular niches in, in, uh, if, if particular sort of um, opportunities can be created. Yeah, and what, I mean, Lorraine, you work with sort of uh, <coughs> younger people generally, <laughs> generally, don't you? So if we go from sort of, you know, one side of, the, of, 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 of work to another, I mean, what... what, what what do you think, what have you seen that the, these sort of organisations can do to attract and keep the, the younger talents of, you know, and, and the older talent? I mean, I have to say, I mean, that, that, that's a sort of key point to make as well. But, you know, at the start of the, the um, employment cycle, what, what... I feel what's really key and a really key word is acceptance. Acceptance that people entering the workforce want a portfolio career perhaps they want change they are looking for meaning and companies would be wise to to accept that and to build that into their organizational strategies and and acknowledge maybe people need sabbaticals maybe they come and go for a few years maybe like for instance l'oreal and other places with incubators they mm-hmm. could do spin-offs and all sorts of other things really building it in and accepting that this change is happening and it will mm. carry on happening and people will not stop asking for it. Yeah, so uh, I think fine, final word from, from, from you, Sunita, then to sort of kind of tie, tie this up a little bit because I mean, you, you've done a lot of work. This is, this is your kind of your, your, your job, right? This is your career. So, I mean, how, how can we sort of t- bring these two together where we attract the talent and we keep the talent that we want, right? And, and keep that conversation going across 
the generations, uh, the experience of the older, perhaps, and the and and maybe the tech skills and, and enthusiasm of the younger. Yeah. And before I say that, actually, I just want to talk about some a research I just read. PwC has done something on workforce of the future. It's very mm. interesting if you can get your hands on it. And it talks about four different workspaces in the future: the yellow world, the green world, the red world, and, and the blue world. And the yellow is about humans coming first. That small social organizations. The green is um, companies care, so it's a lot about the environment. Red is about innovation rules, and this is about bringing like-minded people together to mm-hmm. really think tanks, sure. etc. And which one did I miss? Uh, blue. Thank you. Blue is corporate is king, and and that talks about AI, shabots, robots, and where you just bind skills as you need. So I think. For your generation and Generation Z, the workplace is changing. So it's it's really about you know being more suppliers and clients as opposed to you know working for an organization. So I think that's already a challenge True. in talent development because mm-hmm. you don't know, like you said, you can work for large organizations, you can have startups. Fifty-four percent plus millennials have either started their own company or going to. So, so I think that we have to in organizations. What they're doing now is they're thinking about talent development totally differently. They've turned it almost on its head, mm-hmm. and the idea is to balance the generations. So, what I see happening, uh, you, you hear of things like mindfulness, yoga, mental health training, because it's all generations who want it. You know, it's regardless of baby boomers or not, everybody wants to find meaning in their work. And I think you said that, Sandy. So I just love what Nina said. She said, you know, when the spark in the eye goes out, ask me if I'm bored. Why is it different for one generation versus the other? I know I don't want to be bored. Mm. Um, And so I find organizations now are thinking that it's, you know, rather than stereotyping, they're saying, uh, how can I use your skills, whether you're a baby boomer or a, you know, a generation X or millennial, what is this lifelong learning? You know, is it a job or is it a bundle of skills? And they're trying to more think about skills and what people want in their lives versus, you know, let's have a, a particular program. So reverse mentoring, you know, they're all different programs, but I think fundamentally good organizations and great organizations are actually asking people, what is it that you want to do? What is the skill that you have? And then bringing people together to do that. So that really seems to be working so very well. The, the acknowledgement that you, yeah, you, we have to keep people engaged at all times. Right. And I, I think this is a very good opportunity to, to open questions out to the floor to see that everybody here is engaged. So I want to thank everybody for, for um, all your insights. And um, I would like to invite you to ask any questions of our panellists if anybody has a has one everybody's fallen asleep no uh, yeah no there is no there is there is there is one there hello I'm from Generation Theta can, I, I, can I also I, I, I don't want to interrupt you I forgot to do the sort of housekeeping but if you could tell us your name and your affiliation that would be fantastic as well as your generation Um, (laughs) My name's Alan Cleary. Um, I'm a contracts auditor. I spent 11 years as deputy town clerk of Leeds, and then I went to the United States, and in the Quaker Quaker district of New York City, I set up a wine and spirits store when all the Quakers were on holiday. Um, It was twice voted the best in the city. Um, from the discussion this evening, um, although I'm pre-World War II vintage, I feel I'm from a different planet. 
just as when I hear equality discussions between men and women, mm. um, I think in terms of the strengths that women have and the strengths that men have. I once took a family company to be um, the biggest of its kind in the world and to a, a successful stock exchange flotation because the woman who worked with me, she did the women things, I did the man things. We were definitely equal. Um, can I, can I, I'm sorry to interrupt just you. Just moving I on, ask, ask I want to question. talk about the multi-generational workplace. Yes. And have you had any experience of working in one? Uh, if you haven't, I can suggest two. One is a girls' school, Wellesley College, where both Hillary Clinton um, and the late Laura Bush were pupils. Um, Hillary Clinton, I was interested because I didn't know why it was that a, a girl of limited intelligence from a poor family in a backward state could do so uh, well. Can I just ask you, sir, yeah. to, to just name your two questions for, for the panel, and I'll, I'll open it yeah. up to the panel. Thank you. Um, have you uh, worked in a multi-generational workplace mm -hmm. um, which is highly successful and in many areas the best of its kind. Okay, um, so can I, um, can I, 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 will, I will put this to, I, can, I, can, I, I will put I, this to, to Lorraine and I, I'm just going to um, rephrase that for our, for our things. So the question is, um, have you worked in a multi-generational workplace and particularly a successful one, is that, is that correct, sir? Thank you. Um, absolutely, I worked for L'Oreal, um, which is one of the biggest cosmetic FMCG um, companies there are. Um, and yes, we had all ages from baby boomers all the way to now, they would be millennials. Um, and when I entered, goodness, 2003. So yes, I saw quite a lot of different generations all working together, making fantastic products. And what was particularly useful? I mean, what, 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 why did it work so well, do you think? It's uh, a different... From older generations, than when I entered perspective and experience um, and also wise choices uh, from the younger cohorts, ideas, freshness, uh, that magic, that spark behind the eye. Um, and, and it's great to be able to interact with so many different generations and also cultures, which is a great thing about um, L'Oreal because not only is it multi-generational, but it was also very wide culturally. Mm. So that's such a fantastic place to work at. Um, thank you. Um, do we have any other questions from the audience? Sometimes. Just another. Yes, I can see that gentleman there. Thank you. <laughs> um, the person in the blue shirt. Thank you. Um, so, hi, nice to meet you. My, my name is Alon. I'm a student here, and I'm working. And also, I worked a lot about how to bring organizations to understand millennials before I came to LSE in Israel, and I'm also now working in an organization that 90% of the workers are millennials. And you describe a very nice image of multi-generational and how to work with millennials and how older generations do it, and it's great, but there's so much resistance. And there's so much resistance from people to understand younger people, from younger people to listen to older people. And I would love to hear your opinion on the other side of the picture of how to get how do you handle with the resistance to change, which is natural because it's, uh, you know, I'm, I've been through, I'm, 30, I'm 34, yeah? And even for me, it's difficult to see 21 years old, twice as talented from my, my abilities, 
simply because they were born into a different uh, generation. But I'm just keen to hear your opinion about it. So can I just, so, so, that, so that we understand, you're asking the resistance within, is it older, older generations or resistance within an organization in general? Both. I think younger generations have the same resistance to, to who, who are these people to teach them. Right. So, how do we how 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 do we overcome a resistance to change, perhaps? I mean, what have you seen from your side? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, um. Thank you for that question because life is not rosy all the time, right? <laughs> so, thanks for that question. I, I personally, in many organizations that I've worked with, and I'm currently now clients, I see exactly that. And you know, I, I gave the example earlier of a CEO who actually walks around the floor to check if people have left uh, you know, at, at five o'clock. And if they've left at five o'clock, he actually calls the person into his office, uh, the company to be unnamed, of course, and, and, and gives them a dressing down and says, you know, why are we there? And they, they actually hire 90% of millennials. So I think to answer your question, it's not rosy out there. What I've seen great organizations do, I mean, there is one organization, a large pharmaceutical, which actually has a program that it's based in South Asia, but it's to work and help millennials grow and, and learn their capabilities, but it's also about putting generations together. And what they do, it they do it through mind-body-soul programs. They do it through eye-opening exercises. They actually bring generations together, and they talk about it. They have the art of conversation, and they have dialogue, and they say, what is it, what is your stereotype about me? And then, and then they actually do, you know, they have a conversation around it. And, and what makes you feel that this is the stereotype you need to have? And then they go quite deep in the conversation. Based on that, I've seen it's tremendous because, again, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm very, very simple. It comes down to being a human, whatever generation you are in. And if you can express how you feel and if people and you create the right culture, as Nina said so appropriately, then I've seen that it actually works. Um, but there are very, very few organizations who've nailed it and who have actually, who are getting it right. But this is just one small experience. Very simple, very practical talk about it, put it on the table, and then deal with the resistance as it comes. If I may, may, um, yeah, it's definitely not peachy out there. I was at a conference just last week, um, which is one of the largest financial services conferences in the world. So you had bankers from every high street bank in Europe, and then you had fintech founders who were 26, 27, 28 years old. Um, How do you reconcile that? There's a lot of animosity, there's a lot of oh, your company's valued at one billion and you are 27 years old, that's fine. Um, I've definitely been in situations where someone at work um, at a Christmas party was feeling very bold uh, and came up to me and said, I don't get why we hired you. You're 24 and you've done nothing, so I don't understand why we've hired you. That's a slap in the face, definitely. Um, Similarly, I've seen our developers go up against our QA engineers who have been in the industry for years um, and say, you've, you've messed this up and you've shipped the wrong code. So ultimately, and I think this goes for diversity in every form, whether that's introvert, extrovert, female, male, age, ethnicity, I let my work speak for myself. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm about what am I putting out there? So if a junior developer is shipping code that can be put out into the app store immediately, then who am I to say that you don't know what you're doing? And if our QA engineer continues to catch bugs and tell us that this should be the better way of doing it, 
and he's bringing value, then that's fantastic. And actually, I sat down with that gentleman, uh, and we had a frank discussion. And and now he's actually since come to me and apologized and said, oh, I, I do see, you know, you are bringing some value to the company. And it definitely bristles at times to be younger and be looked at in that, in that way. Um, but I just focus on what am I bringing to the table? I know what I'm bringing to the party. What are you bringing to the party? I, I have to add one more thing, Mina. You, what you said, it just... It reminded me of when I started my own business 11 years ago, and I was fairly young at the time, I must admit, no white hair, and there was this gentleman who came up to me and said, how do you have the right to open up a business you don't have any white hair? And honestly, I had no comment (laughs) at the point. A few years later, when I had white hair, I actually went to him, and I sat down, and he said, guess what? I now have white hair, and he looks at me, what are you talking about? I said, I've opened my own business and I have white hair, so I now have the right to do so. And he was blushing, got red in the face. But so you're absolutely right. People out there, you, you do, you open your mouth, you do it, you prove it, and, and, and everything else goes away, right? So thank you, well, you well, for that. I had yeah. to say that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one thing is to challenge people, right? Yeah. I mean, you challenge people, and I think that that is maybe, again, perhaps this is a... A generalization that I think people are perhaps more comfortable doing now than, than they might have done before, you know. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if that's the case, uh, but I mean, Saj, you, did you have a sort of company perspective from having worked at yeah, so, I mean, this point of resistance, right, yeah. to, to change? So, so generally, I mean, I think people only, well, they respond really to two emotions, pain or pleasure. Mm. And I think the thing that we've seen more and more is... To, to be able to have a meaningful dialogue, as you said earlier, in the transaction, both parties need to be giving and getting something. Mm. And I think what we're seeing is brilliant organisations putting in the infrastructure mm. to be able to have that mm. transaction properly. Mm-hmm. Whether that's you know setting a fora to share ideas where different generations can see the input of different generations, whether it's problem solving together, um, or whether it's actually innovating and driving ideas right through to execution and then celebrating, in hindsight, what it was that caused that level of success. And all paths generally tend to lead to diversity. Diversity of ideas, diversity of opinions makes for successful commercial success. Hmm. Okay. Um, do we have any other questions? From, I think... Hi there, my name is Carmony. I'm a former LSE student myself. Um, my question is about the distinction between the public and the private sector and whether you've seen any differences between how they master the multi-generational workforce and in particular if there's anything you think they can learn from one another. Could you just say the last bit again? Uh, if there's anything that you, uh, you think that the public and private sector can learn from one another in terms of how they've dealt with multi-generational workforce. That's a, that's a very interesting um, um, question. So, again, for the, for the podcast, um, is there anything that the public and private sector are doing well? Then is there anything they could learn from each other? Is that right? Um, Sunday, is that something Gosh, that, that you, you might that, be able to... That's, that's one of those questions you say, well, thank you for that very interesting yeah. question. Well, you desperately think... For desperate, <laughs> I think, does anybody else, would anybody yeah. else like to pitch and in then? Well, well, there's, there's so many... <laughs> Um, it is an interesting question, and uh, I've been lucky enough to work for L'Oreal and also Amnesty International, so very, very oh, yes, different perspectives. Yeah, However, yes, what I've found, despite the challenges which are various and different for these organisations, actually it was down to people. 
And people are the same wherever you go. People have, like you said, they have needs, um, pain and pleasure. They have the same sort of attitudes to, and in, to incentives and how you make that work. So really, it's people. And, and what works for one might not work for the other. So it's, it's the different organizations bringing out what works for that individual or that group of people rather than, oh, because it's private or it's because it's public. Can they learn from each other? Absolutely. Um, and that's why when you have... What, what's great is when you have people that cross over in those different organizations and those worlds, again, diversity, you get a great, great amount of change, amount of ideas, amount of scope, which can only bring it much more richness to that table. So I can comment. Um, <laughs> Which is, I think, that um, organisations that operate by rules um, and become very rule-bound can be the kind of organisations that find the sort of change that we're talking about very difficult to deal with. Um, I think it it, it is possible... I mean, you find rule-bound organisations in the public sector and in the private sector, but there are quite a lot of bits of the public sector that operate by... Uh, having very bureaucratic structures and being very rule-bound. And I do think those organisations struggle with the kind of issues that we've been talking about much more than those that are prepared to be flexible and fleet of foot and um, adapt quite quickly to 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 changing changing situations. So that would be more of a public sector, probably? That that find it more difficult. Yeah, yeah, there are bits of the public sector um, which, you know, which operate with classic bureaucratic rules-based systems. And if those get stuck in that paradigm and are prepared to change as the environment's changing, um, you know, that's where... Uh, you get organisational paralysis and all sorts of the sort of undesirable consequences that uh, that come from that. Uh, if I may, quickly. Um, yeah. Do we um, have time? Yeah, yeah. No, we have time. I, I would be keen to sort of see. I mean, I don't, does anybody have any examples? So yeah. I'm, again, perfect. Yes, Wonderful. I do. So um, Wonderful. Let's have it. Um, I once worked for the US Embassy uh, here in London, mm-hmm. right out of my bachelor's degree um, under the Obama administration. And um, it was a wonderful experience. Um, And I was 21 years old, just moved to London. And I remember my line manager actually took me aside my first week and said to me, your personality is awful and and you need to to fix it if you're going to remain here. Um, of course, I went and had a nice cry in the toilets um, and then came back. But there is a sort of expectation, I think, um, regardless of culture, wherever you live in the world, that people who work in public service um, gain a certain amount of experience and pay their dues, especially because it's public service. It's expected of you. Um, and so people who are higher up in the organization have felt that they have been there. They've been in the mud. They've Maybe they have served in Vietnam. Who knows? And they're telling their war stories to you and expecting you to do the same. Um, it's the, the U.S. government is not particularly a place that's ripe for di- well, it is ripe for disruption, but it's not a great place for it because you find yourself 
not getting on quite well. And it's actually, um, I loved working there, but it was the bureaucracy that actually ultimately left, led me to LSE. <laughs> um, but I think the really exciting thing is with leaders like Barack Obama, like Justin Trudeau, like Macron, we're seeing um, a fresh wave of, of younger leaders who maybe don't have the experience that we expected from them before. Barack Obama was never a senator for X amount of years as we expect everyone to do. Um, Macron was a businessman. He was an investment banker, and he's come kind of out of nowhere. And so we're seeing a fresh breath of air, and I hope that it kind of catches. And they are definitely making a push within the ranks to say, what, what are the young people thinking? And what, what's Snapchat? And, you know, I, I do love seeing them grapple with these things and hiring social media managers. And I think just injecting more youth into it has been really beneficial because I remember teaching our senior foreign, um, foreign commercial service minister, counselor, um, how to use Snapchat so he could respond to his children. And we had a really great laugh about it. And then afterwards, went on to talk about some work. And I think it left, we both left the conversation having learned something, one obviously a lot sillier than the other, but leaving with newfound respect for the other. Um, I hope that that trend continues. But um, So the American government... Is the answer to this question? <laughs> <laughs> all, all governments, um, but I hope that they. It's a tough one to tackle, definitely. And I, if I knew the answer, I would definitely serve it up on a silver platter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that kind of. I think you might have been looking for a specific companies, but um, but uh, it's certainly very interesting. Uh, thank you. Does anybody have any other questions? We have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, put up your hands, everybody. Um. My name's Lauren. I work here at LSE in marketing. I might be a bit of an older millennial. Not really. But um, <laughs> I kind of had a question about burnout in um, millennials. So they come with a lot of ideas, and that is really attractive. Um, but is there a level of self-protection um, so that you can survive at these companies that may, might provide a really great culture, but then where is the line between your work and your life, which might work for younger people who don't have a family or who are, are fine with work also being their social life. Um, so how does then, that then also serve um, an older generation who kind of wants to just leave work when work is over? Can you just um, paraphrase that Perfect. again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Because I, 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 yeah, I want to get um, it right because this is a really interesting question. Yeah. When I I guess it's, maybe it's two parts. So yeah. protecting uh, younger workers from yeah. burnout mm -hmm. and then um, creating a work culture that uh, is still has a definition uh, for both generations that this is work and this is your life mm. um, so it doesn't become all-consuming. Yeah, so how do, how do you protect the younger workers and how do we create a culture that goes across? Right, I feel like sometimes younger workers are looking for maybe a work culture that will satisfy all of their needs, so it is their social life. It's also, um, you know, they can stay late in work. They don't really mind that, but that's not necessarily what someone... Yeah. yeah, so so this is a subject that's really dear to my heart, actually, because if I, if I look at just our own company's trajectory over the last 10 years, if you would have said to me 
eight years ago, what was your most popular training course? I would have said presentation skills for millennials. If you were to say to me today, what is your most popular training course? I would say it's resilience training. Um, so we are always training on resilience. Um, and the reason why is I think there's been a recognition from different generations in the workforce that, from, and again, not to stereotype too much, but millennials, given their enterprising, entrepreneurial nature, they actually don't know when to press the button to stop is one of the things that companies are worried about. They'll just keep going and, and therefore have burnout in the way that you just suggested. So I think increasingly, as part of the initiation and the induction activities, um, we're seeing a lot of our clients run resilience training as a standalone part of induction that gets you to recognize your own body's signals. In fact, it's a, it's a section, a chapter in the book that I've just written, where you've got to train yourself to recognize when you might be burning out. Um, and again, you guys, a lot of your LSE students, so you probably already know this anyway. Um, but I think it's, it's something that companies are recognizing as important. I think you're right to bring it up. And I think to your point about different generations and, and protecting um, the work culture, again, I think it's back to this upskilling the workforce and actually recognizing that you know, you're individual at work and you've got to recognize that you might be the person that stays late. You might not be, but actually increasingly organizations are measuring based on your outcomes, not the amount of hours that you work, um, and actually putting the infrastructure in place for you to be able to be the best you at work. And the best you at work might mean that you leave the office early and you go home and do a couple of hours. The best you might mean that you need to go to a gym or go for a walk at lunch. It doesn't matter. Um, but the culture is now starting to change where they're celebrating that diversity. But I would probably say the difficulty in this is the, um, the, you know, the exes and the baby boomers in the organization that haven't necessarily worked for 20, 25 years in that way. Um, when they've got you know, a young millennial saying, Look, I'm going to pop off to a gym at lunchtime now and I'm going to take my hours break that's due to me. There's some upskilling there that's needed, mm. but, but I think empathy and vulnerability are starting to come through, mm. and in that mixing pot, really good things are starting to happen. Mm. And a couple of additional reflections to what you said, Saj. I think the older generations, what I find now, that's why there are things like mindfulness training, meditation, yoga, wellness. There are all these names that are, are coming up, but they're actually talking about health and nutrition in some of yeah. the clients I work with. And I find that the baby boomers and the Gen, Gen Xs are sighing and they're saying, finally, you know, somebody's taking care of us. So I think, so that also I, I find happens a lot. And then the other thing, which at least from my generation was the peer pressure, because others were staying. I worked with Accenture, I remember years ago, and I was one day leaving at 8 p.m. and they looked at me and they said, you're working half day. And I looked at them <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm done for the day. And, and I think there's also a bit of courage um, for, for the millennials, but also probably more for our generations to say, it's time. My clock is done. I'm better in the morning or I'm better in the evening. And so having the, the courage to say that, but saying it in the right way and, and creating the work culture around it, I think, so from flip side, from the employees, but also from organizations. And, and cultures are now moving slowly, not as fast as I'd like them to, but, but they're moving. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think we have time for one very quick question before we before we wrap up. If anybody would like to ask a final question, yes, I think he's lost the will. No, <laughs> <laughs> great, thank you. Hello, everyone, and uh, I just want to. Can I just ask you to very quickly tell us your name? And, yeah, and, my name and is Anmol Singh. I'm a master student from Hertfordshire University. I just want to ask, like. Uh, on the, you all are so experienced. So, on the base of your experience, uh, what 
can you suggest to an entrepreneur if he want to open a multi uh, multi generational workplace so how th- he can manage uh, whether the experience of the old people as well as the you can say that skills of the new generation how they can manage as like how they can manage the psychology of different people and how they can just rectify the gap between that generation so that they can have a fruitful like you can say mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is how how we how we encourage and develop older people within is that is that right is that the, is that the question I think, I think if I answered the question right, yes, it was um, how is it that you can bring the best out of every generation? Every generation, yes, uh, exactly. Company, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Can I throw one idea into the pot? Absolutely. Start, which is, um, I think the what and the why are always very clear when you're starting off organisations because you've got you know, the energy and the enthusiasm, but I don't think enough time is invested in the how. So I think when you've got a whole mixture, a, a brilliant mixture of generations in a workforce starting a new business, the question you should be asking is, how can we all be the best us? Um, and that dialogue, I think, will then start um, some interesting conversations. Mm. Be my bit to back. Mm. Anybody? I think you're starting from a great place. If if you, as an entrepreneur, um, if I one day want to be an entrepreneur, you're starting in a great place where you're asking the question to begin with, because not everyone does. And um, I keep saying it: the fish rots from the head, and um, that was really cemented into my brain by Dr. Sohn and Sandy and everyone um, in my time at LSE. But um, I would say lead with empathy because if it's important to you, then it will be important in your business and that will be reflected in the way that you interact with your employees, Mm -hmm. the way that you speak to people, the way that you interact, whether it's an intern or a work experience um, 16-year-old or someone who maybe is on the older end, um, and just making sure that you you respect where everyone's going. If someone needs to rush off because they need to go collect their child, um, respecting that, and um, or if someone needs to take some time off because they're just not they're just burned out. Leading from empathy, always. I hope I have the courage to do it one day. <laughs> So I think we have, like, the generations can all learn from each other in the workplace, right? You know, the... the, sure. the, the we'll all the younger, hold hands and sing the younger generation. <laughs> yeah, the younger generations, as Great. we're talking about, they're asking for resilience training, so on and so forth. You know, I mean, this, this, this goes across the board, right? And if there's one thing we've learned here, it's that everybody can learn from each other. And you've got to challenge, uh, you know, people who are... Who are who are um, uh, disrespectful of your of your own competencies and no, but it's but it's true and and perhaps you know and 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 everybody needs to learn from from one another. We have literally thirty seconds, so I think I think we have to. I'm afraid I think we have to wrap up because Christine is uh, waiting in the wings here. <laughs> Yes, well done with the timing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so this brings our panel discussion to a close. It's been a real pleasure for me, and I I, I can see from all of you as well, to listen to our speakers here tonight. I wanted to thank you all as an audience for for being here this evening. I know we were competing with some pretty nice pre-summer weather, so thank you for coming and for your very engaging questions. Um, Obviously, a big thank you to the members of the panel for their visit um, at the LSE here today um, and for taking time out of their busy schedules 
is to engage in a, a, quite an interesting discussion. Um, I can just say that I'd, I'd like to invite you all to join us on the eighth floor where we're having um, uh, some cocktails, and you can continue perhaps dialogue on these issues um, at that time. So thank you all, and good evening.